Well, it's great to see everyone here this morning on this Lord's Day. It's always great to, to come and be with God's people, and we're especially uh, happy if you're visiting with us today, and we pray that our time of fellowship and singing and instruction from God's Word will, will edify you and build you up in Christ. Uh, we're in a study right now. We just started it a couple weeks ago, so if you are visiting, you're kind of getting in on the front end of this. Um, a study in the book of Nehemiah, We've, we're calling Rebuilding Your Future. And uh, we're in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, so if you want to turn there with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, our text this morning is verses 1 to 10. Um, I went a little bit over in the first service, so I'm going to forego reading the passage this morning. We'll just kind of read it as we go along. So um, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is our text, if you want to find that. Um, I like this story about a, a young soldier and his commanding officer that got on a train together. And uh, the only available seats were across from a very beautiful, attractive young woman who was traveling with her grandmother. And as uh, they engaged in some pleasant conversation, the soldier and the young woman kept eyeing each other, and the attraction was obviously mutual. Uh, suddenly, the train went, came into a tunnel, and it just got pitch black in this tunnel, and immediately two sounds were heard, the smack of a kiss and the whack of a slap across the face. Now, the grandmother thought, I can't believe he kissed my grandmother, but I'm glad she gave him the slap he deserved. The commanding officer thought, I don't blame the boy for kissing the girl, but it's a shame that she missed his face and slapped me instead. The young girl thought, I'm glad he kissed me, but I wish my grandmother hadn't slapped him for doing it. As the train came out into the sunlight, this young soldier could hardly contain himself because he'd seized the opportunity, the opportunity to kiss a young, beautiful girl and the opportunity to slap his commanding officer at the same time. And he'd gotten away with both of them. Now, that's a man who knew how to wait for the right moment, right? Who knew how to, to seize an opportunity. And that's really where we find Nehemiah here in Nehemiah chapter 2. And he's waiting for the right moment when he can ask this Persian king, Artaxerxes, for permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the broken walls of the city there. And Nehemiah is waiting for the right moment, waiting for the perfect opportunity, and he doesn't want to miss it when it comes along. Now, let me remind us a little bit briefly, just the background of this book. Uh, the people of Judah, you remember, were taken captive by the Babylonians, taken away from Judah uh, to Babylon, carried away in three successive waves. And finally, in 586 BC, uh, the city of Jerusalem was pillaged and plundered and finally destroyed and left in ruins. And later, you remember, the Persians under King Cyrus conquered the Babylonians and they allowed the Jewish people to go back to Judah and back to the city of Jerusalem. And the first group went back in 538 B.C. under Zerubbabel. Uh, you read about that in the first part of Ezra. Uh, then 80 years later, Ezra leads a group back in 458 B.C., and they go back to restore the people spiritually. The people's lives are broken down. So he goes back for a, a spiritual revival. Then about 14 years later, the time now is 444 B.C., and that's where we come in chapter 1 and 2 in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in Persia. He's about 800 miles away from Jerusalem, and he is the cupbearer to this Persian king named Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah has a position of considerable influence, so he's in, in the perfect position to have authority and influence over this pagan king to bless the Jewish people. Now, God has ordered all the circumstances perfectly so that Nehemiah has heard about what's going on back in Jerusalem. Remember back up in the first couple of verses, uh, Nehemiah had overheard his brother who'd come back from Jerusalem and some other men 
talking about the destruction that was uh, still uh, existing back in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, when he hears this, is brokenhearted about the broken down walls and the burned gates in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, he's so devastated, we learn in chapter 1 that he loses his appetite and he weeps and mourns. And most importantly, he begins to pour out his heart uh, to God in prayer. He calls upon the Lord, pleading for the Lord to answer and to make provision for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And of course, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, we have Nehemiah's great prayer. I like what Tim Keller says about prayer. He says, prayer is simply the key to everything we need to be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. There's nothing more important or harder or richer or more life-altering. To fail to pray is not merely to break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against His glory. Prayer is simply a recognition of the greatness of God. And that's a great definition. Prayer is recognizing the greatness of God, that we need Him, that we're dependent upon Him to meet our needs. Now, when we come to chapter 2, Nehemiah has been earnestly, passionately praying to God for a hundred days straight, seeking God's intervention to give him an opportunity to ask the king to allow him to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the broken down walls. Now, we saw last time in verse 1 that it's the month Kislev in, in November on our calendar when Nehemiah first finds out what's going on. And in chapter 2, we're in the month of Nisan, which is March. So it's been three and a half, four months, about a hundred days. And every day for a hundred days, Nehemiah has been asking God for that to be the day when God will open the door and give him the opportunity. Notice at the end of, or notice at the end of chapter 1 in Nehemiah 1.11. He says, O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today. They'd been praying that for a hundred days. And grant him compassion before this man. So he lives every day for a hundred days with the expectation today might be the day. But for a hundred days in a row, nothing happens. So he waits and he waits and he waits for the opportunity. Now, waiting, I believe, is the hardest part of faith. It's never an easy place to be when God puts us in the waiting room. But waiting time is never wasted time if we allow God to work in our lives. And all this time, I believe, God is working in Nehemiah's heart. Here's the way one author puts it. He says, it's interesting that for four months, God didn't seem to do anything on any given day in answer to Nehemiah's plea. But now we begin to realize that God was actually in the process of doing something in Nehemiah before he would ever do anything through Nehemiah. The genuine believer is struck by the fact that God is as much interested in doing something in him as he is doing something through him. When it seemed that nothing was happening, something was. God was not just preparing Jerusalem for Nehemiah. He was preparing Nehemiah for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is waiting, and all this time he's waiting, God is working. And God works in your life and in my life as we wait upon him as well. And God may have you in the waiting room today. Uh, you may be waiting for God to open a door to some job opportunity. You may be waiting for God to open a door in a relationship that you desire. 
Uh, You may be waiting for God to open a door uh, to start a family. You may be waiting for God to open a door uh, for your business, for for some breakthrough that you need in that area. You may be uh, waiting upon God for an open door to share the gospel with a person that you love very much. Look, waiting for the right moment is never easy, but it's always worth it. And running ahead of God is just as dangerous as falling behind God. So what I want to do this morning is learn from Nehemiah as he waits for the right moment and see what God would have us to do as we wait on God to provide the opportunities he wants for us in life. Now, I've got two simple points here this morning, the readiness of Nehemiah and then the resistance that Nehemiah has. Now, um, we're going to spend most of our time on point number one. So let's look at his readiness. We come now to a particular day. It says it came about in the month Nisan on the 20th, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So a particular day takes place. Now in verse 1 to 3, I call these verses the, the, the preparation. What we see here is Nehemiah's face is sad. He said in verse 1, The wine was before the king, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence. So Nehemiah is sad in the presence of the king. What's happened is over time, his concern has begun to show on his countenance. And it always does eventually. I mean, our faces tell a lot, don't they? I mean, they, they always eventually give us away. We, we might think that somehow we can hide what's going on on the inside, but eventually it's going to come out on the outside. All the fasting and the mourning and the praying that Nehemiah has been doing had an effect on his personality over time. Now, the king would be especially observant of his cupbearer and what his demeanor was like, any change in his demeanor, because this is the man who protected the king's life. He was the man that tasted the king's food. He was responsible for protecting the king when he was asleep at night. So any change in Nehemiah's demeanor would arouse suspicion from a king who probably already was paranoid. Um, This man here, Artaxerxes is his name, King Artaxerxes. The Greeks called him Artaxerxes Longimanus. Longimanus means long hand. Evidently, his right hand was longer than his left hand. So they had this name for him, Longimanus. But Artaxerxes Longimanus, his father, Xerxes, had been murdered or assassinated. And then Artaxerxes had had one of his own brothers killed so he could take the throne. So if you've been through all that kind of stuff in your family, you're going to be a little paranoid, right, and suspicious that maybe somebody wants to do you in. So he's very observant, and he sees Nehemiah is is sad. And looking sad in the presence of the king was dangerous back in that day. In fact, um, Edward Yamauchi, in his book called Persia and the Bible, he says, Persian works of art indicate that those who came in the king's presence did so with great deference, placing the right hand with the palm facing the mouth so as not to defile the king king with one's own breath. So when you came into the king, you had to have your hand over your mouth like this to even talk. I guess that was maybe early germ control or something. I don't know. But um, it, it was very important when you came into his presence to have the right demeanor. So Nehemiah being sad in the king's presence was a breach of Persian palace etiquette because Persian protocol demanded that servants be happy in the presence of the king. They wanted the king sheltered from any kind of unhappiness. So you didn't show up sad in the king's presence. You didn't want to rain on the king's parade, if you will. And Nehemiah tells us in verse 1, I had never been sad in his presence. Now, 
The king notices this. In verse 2, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So the king asks him about his sadness. He sees it, and then Nehemiah is afraid because he realizes that his sadness is showing, and he realizes he could be in trouble. But I love this. He responds with courage and tact. Now notice when he says, I was very much afraid, in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now that's the first thing I would have said too, right? You want to assure the king of your loyalty? Hey, king, I'm on your side, man. You, may you live forever. I mean, that's exactly what the king would want to hear from his cupbearer. But then Nehemiah really takes his life into his hands, and he says to the king in verse 3, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Now remember back in Ezra chapter 4, the man who had stopped the rebuilding of the city was Artaxerxes. And he said, why wouldn't I be sad when the city's in ruins? I mean, in a way, you're kind of blaming the king for this, but we see his courage here. I mean, he says clearly, I was afraid, but yet he didn't let his fear paralyze him from seizing the opportunity that God gave him. And you might just think back in your own heart and mind, think of the opportunities in life maybe that you missed because of fear. Fear can cripple us from seizing the opportunities and, and taking advantage of the, the, the moments that God gives us to, to take advantage of. Now, we also see his tact here because he doesn't say, he never mentions the city of Jerusalem. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate? Now, they both know it's Jerusalem, but he never mentions it. And we know from history that the kings of Persia revered their ancestors, and their graves were sacred places, and they gave great honor to the dead. So we see the tact of Nehemiah here in that he taps into something that would strike a responsive, sympathetic chord with Artaxerxes. He mentions the, the tombs of his fathers uh, that lie desolate. So he targets his message to something that he knows would be of interest to King Artaxerxes. So the point here is Nehemiah answers wisely and graciously. And he presents this issue not as a political matter, but as a personal one. It's personal to him that his father's tombs uh, lie desolate. Now then the king said to me, verse 4, what would you request. This is the moment that Nehemiah has been praying for for a hundred days. The king says, Nehemiah, what do you want? The door of opportunity has swung open. And I think this is again validation of that great verse in Proverbs 21.1. This is the, the heart, uh, the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hands. God directs them wherever he will. God has been working in the heart of this king. World leaders are the servants of the true God, whether they realize it or not. So Nehemiah's moment of opportunity has come. Some of you may have heard this before. Back before the days of modern harbors, a ship had to wait for the flood tide before it could uh, make it into port. And in, in Latin, this was called ab portu. That is a ship that was standing off the port, waiting for the moment when it could ride the turn of the tide into the harbor. So the captain and the crew would stand ready, waiting for that one moment. Because if they knew that if they missed that moment, they'd have to wait a while for the tide to come in again. 
And we get our word opportunity, our English word, from that Latin, ab portu. It's derived from that original meaning. And, and I think that's the, a great description of where we see Nehemiah here in chapter 2. He's been waiting for that moment when the tide will turn and he can ride that tide and make his request uh, to King Artaxerxes. And it's finally arrived. The tide has come in. Now, what does Nehemiah do? Look at the end of verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah, I think, swallows hard and realizes his moment of opportunity has come, and he sends up a spontaneous short prayer to God. I prayed to the God of heaven. The natural instinct of Nehemiah in a critical moment is to pray. Now, in the Scriptures, there there are two main kinds of prayer. There are longer kinds of prayer, protracted prayer. And every one of us should have that as part of our prayer life. We should pray maybe in the morning, in the evening, maybe both of those times where we go to the Lord for a a longer time of prayer. We could call that in today's language email type prayers, like they're longer. But there's another kind of prayer that are short, immediate, on-the-spot prayers that have often been called arrow prayers. It's just a, a quick shot to heaven. We could call those today text message prayers, right? When you got these longer prayers that we should pray, be part of our daily lives. But we have these short text message or arrow prayers. And we find both of these in the book of Nehemiah. Twelve prayers of Nehemiah are in this book. One prayer in chapter 9 is the longest prayer in the Bible. But eight of the twelve prayers of Nehemiah are these short arrow kinds of prayers. Now we need to understand the only reason Nehemiah had an instinct to pray in this critical moment is because I think that was all backed up by a life of prayer. It's because he'd been always praying that then in these moments of crisis, he could shoot up a prayer to God. H.A. Ironside says it like this, What an atmosphere of prayer surrounds this man. It is his constant resource through all of his varied experiences. He walked with God because he talked with God. And there you have Nehemiah standing on a Persian rug, in the palace of the king, and all of a sudden, in spirit and in mind, he is in the presence of God. It's immediate and it's intimate. Between breaths, he found an audience with God. I mean, look at verse 4. The king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king. I mean, it can't have been more than a, a second or two, right? The king asked him a question. He prays to God. And then he answers of the king. It can't have been, again, more than just a second or two of time. And what this tells me is we can carry on a conversation with God amidst our other daily conversations. You ever thought about that? You're talking to somebody on, the, on your phone, cell phone. They're talking to you about some concerns or troubles they have. You can be praying to God while you're talking to them. Uh, you can be praying to God as some other critical Uh, issue arises in your life with someone. Raymond Brown says it like this, any moment we can talk to God. There and then in the presence of a human king, Nehemiah is at the footstool of heaven. What a beautiful statement that is. In a moment, you and I can place ourselves in the presence of God. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever you're facing, Driving in your car and all of a sudden you know, somebody's skidding towards you, whatever, you can shoot up that prayer to the Lord. 
Um, I think Cheryl sends up a lot of arrow prayers when she's with me in the car driving and I'm driving around. I I think she does that often. She certainly uh, helps me get where I'm going. But uh, when, when the tests in class are being passed out, if you're a young person, you can send up an arrow prayer to the Lord. Uh, when the boss calls you into her office, uh, when, the, when the doctor's office calls you with the test results, when you feel tempted to give in to sin, cry out to the Lord and say, God, help me. Give me strength. Uh, when something good and wonderful happens in your life, you can shoot up an arrow prayer of gratitude. Like I love in the mornings, I'm walking out to get the paper in the morning on a beautiful day. God, thank you for this beautiful day you've given us today. Just short prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving and requests for help. I don't know what Nehemiah said here, but he may have just something, said something like, God, help me. You know, God, give me wisdom. Some quick statement like that. But one of the things we learn here is short prayers can be effective prayers. Now, that's not an excuse for not having a disciplined life of longer times of prayer, but it's just simply to say short prayers can be effective. Remember Peter, when he steps out of the boat and begins to walk on water and sinks, what does he say? Lord, save me. One of the last verses in the Bible, the Apostle John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. The Bible is filled with these kinds of prayers. So any moment of time in your life and my life, we can find an audience with God. And I love it in this passage. Think about this. Nehemiah's approach to to Artaxerxes is very cautious. But his approach to God, the God of heaven, is confident. He just comes into God's presence in a split second of time and calls out for God to help him. And that's what the New Testament tells us in, in the book of Hebrews. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And that means literally we can speak freely to God. We can say everything and come with candor. And the only reason you and I have this kind of approach to God is that approach, that privilege was bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator. It's based on the merits of our Lord Jesus that you and I have an audience with God. The only reason you and I can go into the presence of a holy God at any moment of time is because of what Jesus has done for us. So I'd ask you the question this morning, do you know the Lord Jesus? The only way you'll ever know God and be able to come in God's presence and have a relationship with Him is through Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 says that Jesus is that one mediator between God and man. He is our go-between. He's the one that you need to know if you're going to have an entree into the presence of God. So if you've never accepted Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity this morning to do that. Right where you sit. You can accept that pardon he purchased for you at the cross and make him your savior. But here in this passage, we see that if we know the Lord, we can come at any moment and make our our difficulties known to him. God is accessible to us. Now in verse 5, we move from the, the prayer to the plan. And I said to the king, if it please the king, if your servant has found favor, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. Now think about this. What Nehemiah is asking Artaxerxes to do is not an easy request. He's asking this king to do a U-turn and rescind the previous edict he'd made back in Ezra chapter 4 that the city was not to be rebuilt. 
So God is going to have to do something in the heart of this king to change his mind, and, and Nehemiah knows that. Now, it's interesting to me in verse 6, it says, The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. It's an interesting little note that Nehemiah adds because it was unusual for the queen to be at a function that was more formal in nature. So this may have been like a private party or a, a special banquet. We know that, that the, the wife of Artaxerxes was named uh, Demaspia. So she was there too. He may have mentioned this as well because that way he kind of had a witness to all that went on there. She could kind of hold Artaxerxes' feet to the fire uh, that he'd made these promises to Nehemiah. But, but I love this section because it tells us that while Nehemiah was waiting for the right moment for God to give him the opportunity, Nehemiah was doing two things. We know he was praying, and the other thing we know he was doing, he was planning. Because when Artaxerxes asked him, what do you want me to do? He asked for the mother load. I mean, he's been rehearsing this, I think, over and over again. I mean, he's loaded for bear when this happens. And we're just struck here by his readiness. The king says, what do you want? He says uh, down in verse uh, 7, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests. So he even knows the name of the man who keeps the forests of the king. So he asks here for lumber and for letters, for, for timber and travel documents that will get him safely there. And the king asks him, how long are you going to be gone? And he said, I gave the king a definite time. Now, we know from later on in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is in Judah for 12 years. Now, I don't think he initially asked King Artaxerxes for 12 years. Probably what he did is he asked him for a specific period of time and probably reported back to the king periodically about how things were going and then probably received periodic extensions of the time. But the king here grants him this sabbatical and gives him letters, gives him lumber to rebuild, a diplomatic immunity. He has the full authority of the Persian throne behind him as he goes back to Judah. And we learn here in this passage a very important truth that praying and depending on God does not eliminate our responsibilities to plan. A lot of people have this idea, well, if I'm praying and depending on God, then just kind of leave it all with Him. No, God honors our planning. And this man knows it. He knows how long it's going to take. He knows who the, the man is who keeps the timber over there. He has all kinds of specific requests. So praying and trusting God and planning are not incompatible with one another. It's like a story I heard about a young man. He was a young pastor at a Methodist camp. And about an hour before the next session for someone to speak, the bishop there came up to him and said, the guy who's supposed to speak got sick, and so I need you to speak here in one hour. The guy said, well, I can't do that. I'm not ready. What am I going to do? And he said, well, just trust the Lord. The guy says, okay. So he goes into a, a room there off to the side and begins to you know, just think, what in the world am I going to talk about? And he sees a Bible lying there, so he goes and picks it up and thumbs through it, and some notes fall out of it. And he goes, man, this is a great sermon. So he goes out and preaches this sermon he's found, and man, that's just a home run. And afterwards, everybody's lining up to meet him and talk with him. And about that time, the bishop is pushing his way through the crowd to get to the young man. And he said, that was my Bible you found, and that was my sermon I'm supposed to preach this afternoon. He says, what in the world am I going to do now? The young man said, well, you're just going to have to trust the Lord. <laughs> 
Look, prayer and planning are not mutually exclusive. We need to pray, but we need to plan and get ready when God opens the doors for us and gives us opportunities. Now, I love down at the end of verse 8, Nehemiah prayed and Nehemiah planned, but he knew that what happened had one explanation. The good hand of God was upon him. Look at the end of verse 8. And the king granted these things to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. He gives God all the glory. Nehemiah, in his memoirs, and that's what this book is. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah. He wants to highlight a paramount truth, and that is that God's good and generous and gracious hand is the key to all success. The good hand of God is what had made the king a cooperative. And so Nehemiah is careful here to give God all the glory. I like what one person says. He says, it's not because Nehemiah was smart that all this happened. It's because God was sovereign. It's not because Nehemiah was great, but it's because God was gracious. We're going to see this throughout the book over and over again. The good hand of God is upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. <clears throat> now, notice the end of verse 9, one thing. It says, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So Nehemiah gets more than he even asked for. He gets a, an entire military escort to go with him. And to me, that's just another evidence to us that God often gives to us even more than we ask. God is generous uh, to His servants. Now, one thing, just quickly, before we go to our final point, and we'll just be on that point for just a few minutes. One thing I want to mention here, and I don't, I don't have time to go in this in detail, but God has a schedule here that He's keeping. You say, why did Artaxerxes agree to all this on this particular day? I mean, 100 days have gone by. Why wouldn't it the day before or the day after? This is a, one of the most important events here in Nehemiah 2 in all of Bible prophecy. If you go back to Daniel 9, we won't turn there, but Daniel 9, 24 to 27, we have the greatest time prophecy in the Bible. And what it tells us there, it says, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's this decree. It's the decree of Artaxerxes, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince will be 69 sets of seven years. Now, 69 times 7 is 483 years. You reduce that down to days. If you take the 360-day prophetic calendar of the Jewish people, that's 173,880 days. So the prophet Daniel says, from a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince will be 173,880 days. Now, Bible scholars believe that this day was March the 5th of 444 B.C. If you go from March the 5th, 444 B.C. to March the 30th of A.D. 33, it's 173,880 days. That's the day of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And Jesus says, if you'd have only known this day, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. It's the greatest prophecy in the Bible. And it started on this day, that time started running, the very day when Artaxerxes gives the decree to Nehemiah to go back to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And I just love that because what it tells us is God has a schedule. Everything happens on time in God's schedule. Nehemiah could have been wondering, Lord, why in the world is it taking all this time? God's saying, look, I got a, a prophecy Daniel gave about 100 years earlier, and I'm waiting for the exact day. 
And God has a schedule for your life and my life in the events of it as well. Sometimes we're waiting and we're wondering, what is God doing? God has a schedule, and God will always keep to that schedule, and it'll always end up for the best. Anyway, you can read Daniel 9, uh, 24 to 27 at your leisure. It's a beautiful passage, but this is the beginning of the running of that 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. Now, let's just close here this morning. Really, this is just a segue to next week, but we see the resistance here. And this is striking to me because God has been with Nehemiah. God's blessed him. God's given him favor with the king. And he travels with this military escort with the full authority of the Persian government behind him. And he arrives in Judah. And the first thing that happens to him is he meets two men who are going to be his opponents the rest of this book. The welcoming committee for Nehemiah are a couple of enemies who are going to oppose him. They're going to hound him every step of the way through this book. They're named Sanballat and Tobiah. They're in verse 9 and verse 10. Uh, I like to call them the axis of evil, really, through the rest of this book. Now, Nehemiah has enjoyed a great victory. The first thing that happens is he faces opposition. But we think, man, it's going to be all smooth sailing for Nehemiah from this point on with all that God's done for him. But we learn here that serving God is not always smooth and easy. In fact, I like what G.K. Chesterton said years ago. He said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they're generally the same people. I like that. And that's true with Nehemiah. His neighbors, these guys who are going to be there that are living in the land, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're his neighbors but they're going to also be his enemies. So the first people to come out to meet him, the welcoming committee, when they come to meet him, he initially immediately feels the heat of opposition. And this tells us when you set out to do a work for God, when you set out to to rebuild, you had better be ready because there will always be opposition from the enemy. If God's hand is on us, the world will turn its back to us. This world is no friend of God, but we always need to be ready for opposition. And we're going to see that as we get into chapters uh, 4 and 5 and 6, especially in this book. You know, there's a great message in the book of Nehemiah for serving God. You need to pray, you need to plan, and then you have to persevere. There's always going to be trouble. You pray and you make the plans, but it's always going to require perseverance. It's never going to be easy or smooth sailing. One final thing here about Nehemiah. I love this in verse 10. He says, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the officials heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Notice how Nehemiah describes himself. Someone had come. He doesn't say the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes had come. He doesn't say God's chosen leader has come. He doesn't say the new governor of Judah has finally come. He just said someone has come. And he's referring to himself. He's that someone who showed up. And again, we see his humility. He just sees himself as a someone. And he sees all the credit and the honor going to the fact that God's good hand was upon him. Look, as you and I wait in our lives for God to open doors of opportunity for us. And I don't know what what you need, what door you're waiting for God to open for you. But while we're waiting for God to open doors of opportunity for us, we need to pray and we need to plan. And we also need to expect that when that opportunity comes, there will always be opposition with it. When God's hand is on us, the world is going to turn its back to us. 
Last week, I think Jay mentioned to you, we were, Cheryl and I were gone, and I had the opportunity to go up and preach at Moody Church in Chicago, beautiful place. Um, got to, you know, preach in the pulpit there where H.A. Ironside, one of my great heroes in the faith, was the pastor for 18 years. So it was a wonderful time. I mean, it was cold up there, by the way. The day we came back, it was 30 degrees and snowing, so we we're glad to come back here. But after the, the morning service, we got to go have lunch with Dr. Erwin Lutzer and his wife, and he's the, the most recent pastor there. He's pastor emeritus. Um, he's been retired now for two years while they're looking for a replacement for him. But he's a well-known pastor, wonderful man of God. And I asked him how he ended up coming to Moody Church, how he ended up being the pastor there. He said, what's well, a incredible story. He said he had re- resigned uh, being the pastor of a, of a church there in Chicago. And he was going to go seek some more education at, at Loyola University and teach at Moody Bible Institute. So he and his wife didn't have a church to go to since he wasn't the pastor. And so he wanted to go to some other church, but his wife insisted that they go to Moody Church that Sunday. So he said, okay, well, we'll go there. Now, if you've ever been there, parking there is terrible. I mean, it, it's, they don't have parking lots around there. In fact, they told me while I was there, they just purchased a piece of property across from the church where they can get 35 parking spots. It was $3.5 million dollars. So I told them our parking spots here are 1700 bucks a piece to build, and they were freaked out about that. But anyway, but so you can't find a parking spot. But he said that Sunday, he dropped his wife and kids off there on LaSalle Street, and he was driving, going to go find a parking spot, and he saw a guy over there fumbling around with his keys, and the guy pulled out of a parking spot right in front of the church. I mean, he said, you know, never would happen. So he pulls in that parking spot, walks in the church, standing there in the lobby for, he said, maybe a minute. And uh, the, the, the pastor at the church at that time was Warren Wearsby. Many of you know that name. And uh, he, Dr. Lutzer kind of knew him. They weren't great friends, but they knew one another. And Dr. Wearsby walked by, had his coat all pulled around. He said he looked terrible. He looked over at him and says, Lutzer, he says, I'm sick as a dog. He says, you're going to have to preach for me this morning. Erwin Lutzer said, what? So anyway, he has, it's like 10 minutes before the service starts. So Lutzer goes over and finds an, uh, one of those offering envelopes and he writes out an outline of Psalm 1, a sermon he'd preached several weeks ago, trying to remember it, and was preaching. And he told me, he said, when I was preaching there that morning, the thought came to my mind, if God ever gives me the opportunity to be the pastor at this church, I'll take it. And about two years later, he was the pastor at Moody Church. And so here he is out there, you know, standing around in the lobby, and this opportunity comes he could never dream of. And he ends up being the, the pastor there at, at Moody Church. And Dr. Lutzer gave me a copy of a book that he's written. It's his autobiography. And I actually read it on the way back on the plane. And one of the chapters is called The Providential Parking Space. And here's what he says in there about that. He says, Together Rebecca and I, that's his wife, have learned that God's providential guidance extends to all the details of our lives, even to a parking space. If we hadn't decided to come to Moody that Sunday back in 1977, if that man hadn't pulled out of his parking spot on LaSalle Street exactly at the right moment, if I hadn't been standing where I was in the church lobby, I would have missed seeing Pastor Wearsby. If any of these ifs and a dozen others had not happened, I might have never become the pastor of the Moody Church. But then he says this, listen carefully. As the days and months of my pastorate moved along with unexpected trials... And he went on to tell me when he became the pastor there, there was a lot of unexpected trials and opposition. He said, I often consoled myself with the assurance that I had become the pastor of the Moody Church by divine appointment. That's what consoled him. And I love that. He's a man that God used to to bring the opportunities together who seized that opportunity. But when he got it, 
There was a lot of unexpected trials that came along. That's exactly what Nehemiah is going to experience. Look, I don't know what you're waiting for in your life, waiting for the right moment, waiting for an opportunity. But I want to encourage you this morning to pray. I want to encourage you to plan. I want to encourage you to be ready whenever God provides that opportunity. And always be careful to give God the glory. Realize when it happens, it's because the good hand of God is upon us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't have that mediator between themselves and you, that they'll take Jesus to be their Savior this morning, that they'll believe in Him, and that they'll realize that only through Him can they come into the presence of a holy God. Thank you for that perfect sacrifice that Jesus has offered for our sins so we can know you and come into your presence. Well, Father, we thank you that you're a God who opens doors, that you're a God who's out ahead of us in life, orchestrating the events of life down to even a a parking place. And Father, I, I pray that as we go through our lives that we will be ready, we'll be alert, we'll be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit for those moments you give us to seize the opportunities that you bring to us in our lives. Father, I pray that as individuals here this morning, as families, as a church, that we will expect to see open doors in our life from you in the days to come. Oh God, we're dependent upon you for it. And Father, I pray that when we do see those doors open, we'll give you the glory. We'll realize that everything good that happens in our life is only because God's good hand is upon us. Oh, Father, thank you for that good and gracious guiding hand upon our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand for the benediction. I pray uh, this morning that maybe this will spur in your mind some things that you're waiting for God to do, uh, some opportunities, waiting for the right moment. Again, we don't wait, wait around doing nothing. We, we're, pr- we're planning, we're praying, but... I pray that God will open those doors for you in this coming week, in these coming days, and you'll be ready to go through them. Again, if you're a visitor with us, thank you for being here. We appreciate uh, you taking time on this Lord's Day to come be with us. You got these doors around the corner to your left. Uh, There's a welcome center there, and there's some folks there that'd love to greet you this morning. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing. Well, Father, as we leave here this morning, we ask for, for no other request that as we leave here this morning as individuals, as families, as a church, that your good hand would be upon us. May we be looking for those opportunities and be ready for them, O God, when you bring them. All God's people said, amen.